Welcome to the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. Welcome, Intelligentsia, to another edition of the Jeffers Brief. I know it's twice this week. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. Uh, where do we start? You know, uh, oh, yeah, I know where I want to go. First of all, let me add, let me say this, my friends. Oh, come on, really? I hate when this happens. Uh, I just want to acknowledge listeners around the planet, mind you, who listen in here on the Contra Radio Network and on this show as well. So. Let us start, shall we? Just a little uh, interesting things here. Our age groups for our all, all of our shows. Let me think, give me this. What the hell, bastards? Trying to change out on me. I won't allow it. The age groups for our demographics has is pretty much. It, it's across the spectrum. Maybe not in the same numbers, but nonetheless across the spectrum. So with that said, uh, our show here at Contrario Network, and it's in no particular order, just so you, you, you understand it. We got the United Kingdom, Canada, Ireland, Sweden, Australia, the Netherlands, Portugal, Puerto Rico, which is a territory, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, Spain, Norway, Romania, and Singapore and Malaysia. Who else did I? Uh, the Netherlands, Sweden. Did I say Romania? I think I did. Romania, Brazil, Japan, Russia. Yeah, that's right. We're getting out there. I want to thank all you listeners around the world for listening. If you want to contact me, you can by email. That's ContraRadio at Live.com. ContraRadio at Live.com. Drop me a line. Love to hear what you guys have to, th- what you guys think. Uh, questions, comments. Even if they're bad comments. You say, John, you suck. You don't know what you're talking about. I can live with that. Hell, I've been called worse by better people, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> but uh, here's one, you know. I'm so sick and tired, and I've said this before, and I'm just going to keep on doing it and saying it and complaining and bitching about it is because of this damn COVID thing. Guys, yes, it's real. Yes, you will get sick, and the chances of you dying are slim. You may feel like you want to die, but the chance of you dying from COVID-19 are very slim indeed. As a matter of fact, when you have to deal with the Kyles and Karens of the world, Put your mask on. You just don't know. You've never had anybody that had it that you know that died. Your response is very simple. You say, neither have you. If you know somebody who has passed away, and they're saying, well, COVID did it. No. Chances are very good they had a prior medical condition in which COVID was a contributing factor to their death. But COVID itself did, in and of itself, did not kill anybody. But meanwhile, we got the CDC. You know, 
the CDC, the DOJ, and the FBI are three of the many government institutions that I have absolutely no faith in whatsoever. I don't trust them. I think they've lost all integrity. And really, should they should you listen to them? Of course you should listen to them, but do so with discernment. Don't take what they say as gospel. Now, this is from April 2nd, my friends, in a strafe over at Red State. Put this out. It is great. Because what we're going to talk about is the CDC's incoherence. And it accelerates as they see power slipping from their grip. Yes. So Streif writes, he says, you know, my colleague Scott Hounsel posted about the CDC permitting us to travel so long as we had the vaccine and continue to wear face diapers, anti-social distancing, and engage in basic hygiene. And this is how Scott sums things up. In other words, nothing has changed. The recommendation still only applies to essential travels. And those who have been vaccinated still have to comply with mask mandates and social distancing guidelines. Why? You've been vaccinated. Yeah, I've been asking that question for a couple months now, and I still haven't got a good answer. In fact, I've got no answers. So, next to nothing has changed. So, how many were quarantined after their return unless it was required? My own family's spring break trip to Hawaii was postponed as a result of travel restrictions due to COVID-19, which have not been altered, even in the light of all adult passengers being vaccinated. This is precisely why Americans are increasingly finding the government mandates laughable. I have talked previously about the data showing that many of the government-imposed measures are slow to spread, were completely unnecessary, and in many cases made the problems worse. Now, even when you comply with government directives to vaccinate, they still won't let you get back to your life. So hot on the heels of that announcement, the CDC has made another announcement about travel and vaccine. CDC Director Walensky says, while we believe that fully vaccinated people can travel at low risk to themselves, CDC is not recommending travel at this time due to the rising number of cases. Why should we have any rising number of cases? We're wearing face diapers. We've been vaccinated. Why do we need to keep doing it? The state of play now is that the CDC doesn't want you to travel, even if you have the vaccine, and do the same silly virtual city virtue signaling as everyone else. But it gets better. So last week, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky was on Rachel Maddow's show on NBC. And this was Maddow's setup for the interview. Well, today, the CDC reported new data that shows that under real-world conditions, not just in a lab, not just extrapolating from tiny numbers of test subjects, but looking at thousands in frontline health workers and essential workers who have gotten vaccinated and have since been doing their jobs and living in the real world. Not only are the vaccines for those folks, thousands of them keeping those people from getting sick from COVID themselves, those vaccines are high, also highly effective at preventing those people from getting infected, even with non-symptomatic infection. 
And if you are not infected, you can't give it to anybody else. Now, I know it sounds like an incremental piece of news, but sit on this for a second enough to absorb what this means, right? What this means is that we can get there with vaccines. We can end this thing. It means that instead of a vaccine being able, excuse me, it means instead of the virus being able to hop from person to person to person, spreading and spreading, sickening some of them, but not all of them, and the ones it doesn't sicken, don't know they have it, and they give it a mere poem because they don't recognize it, right? So instead of the virus being able to hop from person to person, potentially mutating and becoming more virulent and drug resistant along the way, now we know that vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus is not infective. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. It cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to get more people. That means the vaccine will get us to the end of this. If we just go fast enough to get the whole population vaccinated, it's huge news. Now, what what Maddow described there in a breathless terms was basically how all vaccines are understood to work. If you are vaccinated, you are nearly definitely immune to the pathogen and you can't spread it to others. That's why we have childhood vaccines. Walensky did not contradict this commentary in the interview in the manner that has become the trademark of CDC messaging on any health issue that was then, this is now. So now, the CDC has walked back the claim that vaccinated people can't carry the coronavirus. After Walensky made the statement, her own agency contradicted her. The CDC has walked back the claim made by its director that vaccinated people don't carry the coronavirus. CDC Chief Rochelle Walensky said earlier this week that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. But the health agency clarified the statement Thursday saying, the evidence isn't clear and that Walensky was speaking broadly. It's possible that some people who are fully vaccinated could get COVID-19. A CDC spokesperson told the New York Times, which is hardly reliable for anything. Seems It seems the New York Times... Every time they put a story out, it's all based on, you know, the unknown source. The evidence isn't clear whether they can spread the virus to others. We are continuing to evaluate the evidence. So, Dr. Peter Bach, director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, said confusion about bulletproof immunity could lead to Americans refusing to wear a mask after getting the jabs. So two things are happening. (laughs) First and foremost, our public health policy is being determined by idiots. A few weeks ago, my colleague Susie Moore and I explored this topic on an episode of More to the Point. That'd be uh, More to the Point with Susie Moore, Episode 5, Conversation with Streif on Elite Incompetence. And boy, is it out there. No matter what other motive is afoot, there is one. It is difficult to reconcile the relentless, relentless self-beclowning the public health establishment has inflicted upon itself with anything but absolute incompetence. It is funny, and I must admit, watching the Grand Poobah tell us no mask, one mask, two masks, six feet, three feet, demonstrate but don't go to church has been entertaining. It is also dangerous. 
We were confronting a virus that is somewhat more lethal than the seasonal flu, but definitely much less dangerous than the 1918 flu. And no sane person can have any confidence that anyone advising policymakers and legislatures can tell his or her ass from a hot rock. For instance, states without a mask mandate and lockdowns are doing better than the states with the most extreme policies. Events that were maligned as super spreader events in the media, such as the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally, the Super Bowl, Trump campaign rallies, and spring break in Florida, have not been proven to be any more dangerous than the events like BLM riots that were championed by the media. And this is just in on the new round of lockdowns in Germany. That's right. The old saying, never attribute to malice what can be explained by stupidity, is probably correct here. That does not mean there is a large dose of malice tossed in for good measure. And then you have the New York Post story. Dr. Peter Bach, director of the, you know, as I said, said confusion about bulletproof immunity could lead to Americans refusing to wear masks after getting the jabs. Now, we've discussed for months how this virus has been used as a stalking horse to set aside our rights under the Constitution. Never before have our governors been empowered to forbid church services, prohibit gatherings in private homes, or force any citizen to wear a particular item of apparel and had those decisions upheld by the courts. They have become brazen about what they are doing. Now, as Bocci points out in this agenda here, CNN says the quiet part a lot about lockdowns and vaccinations and its pure tyranny. We are at a point where the people are making these policies have revealed themselves to be knaves and poltroons. They don't know what they're doing and appear to be using us as lab rats in their Skinner box to make us respond to stimuli. As they say, shits and grins. They are using the authority they have arrogantly appointed to themselves to erode civil liberties, civil rights, civil society. And they're going to be surprised when we all stop playing along with the fiction that these clowns have any right to do what they are doing. There you go. And I know more and more people are saying, screw you. I'm not wearing a mask. Uh, my next door neighbor went into a grocery store. And he wasn't wearing a mask. You know what? I'm going to tell you what it was. It was a Woodman's in Volo. Woodman's Grocery Store in, no, I'm not Volo, in Lakemore, Lakemore, Illinois. And he wasn't wearing his mask. He had three employees come and berate him about putting on the mask. He said, I'm not going to do it. Well, we're going to call the police. I said, and, and I guess if it was me, my response would be, oh, yeah, what law am I violating? So you call the police. Now, he says, look. When, I, when, when I'm around people, he says, if I'm in the checkout line, I put my mask on. When I'm checking out the cashier, I put my mask on. I keep my six feet, but I'm not wearing a mask anymore. He says, I've gone to Jewel, and no one says a word to me. So for all you Kyles and Karens out there, get ready. Because you're about to be in for a rude surprise and a rude awakening. When the rest of us say, no more. Now, some of you probably have heard, and it's starting to get around, 
you preppers out there. There is a shortage of ammo. Okay, according to the firearms industry, is doing its best to keep up with demand. What you have to understand is this. There are a number of reasons for the ammo shortage. For one, it happens every election cycle, especially during presidential elections. The violence last summer in conjunction with the COVID pandemic has sparked a number of first-time gun owners. So the market for buying ammunition has expanded exponentially. The threats coming from Congress and the White House on gun control also has Second Amendment-loving Americans stocking up for the worst-case scenario. While it can often feel frustrating to not see ammunition in stock, you got to give these guys a break. They're working hard to meet the demand. They are running on all cylinders in the middle of a pandemic that frequently shuts down manufacturing plants and warehouses. This is also a great reminder to be prepared Buy extra ammo so you won't be out when things are scarce. All right, so yeah, that's the reason. Don't get freaked out over it, boys and girls. There's no need for it. Go out there, buy what you got to buy. If you've been prepping long enough, as you should have been all along, you should have some, some ammunition in storage. For times like this. I know, you don't care. I get it. All right. Let's talk about seven ways to survive an EMP attack. Derek James, thank you for the article. It's very good. Now, most of you have probably read post-apocalyptic books or seen post-apocalyptic movies where the EMP initiates a collapse. Those might demonstrate ways to survive an EMP attack, but fiction and reality are often worlds apart. So, for those of you that are new to prepping, what exactly is an electromagnetic pulse? An electromagnetic pulse, or EMP for short, is a sudden burst of energy that overloads the fragile components within an electrical system, causing them all to short out. It causes actual hardware damage, resulting in the failure of any unprotected electrical devices. The likely threat of an EMP would be from a high-altitude nuclear blast. However, non-nuclear directed energy devices and specialized conventional weapons, such as the Scud missiles, could also be used to generate an EMP. Geomagnetic stores, storms also create EMPs. In fact, it's happened before, the most notable time being the 1859 Carrington event which filled the sky with a celestial light show and sent massive currents through electrical wires destroying telegraph machines. This was at a time when the world was far less dependent on electrical devices. However, so the impact did not disrupt everyday life. If the same event were to happen today, the impact on modern society would be nothing short of devastating, if not catastrophic. So, is an EMP an actual threat? Essentially, Every aspect of American society requires electrical power to function. Remember, electrical power is the thin veneer of our society. Contemporary U.S. society is not structured 
nor does it have the means to provide for the needs of nearly 300 million Americans without electricity. And that is a quote from the EMP Commission report. Now there's no question about an EMP is real and serious threat, but there is a wide variety of discussion on how likely of a threat that it is. Now Ted Koppel, author of Lights Out, considers an EMP attack to be the least likely way an attacker would attempt to take down the U.S. electrical grid, believing a cyber attack is more likely. The effects could be the same, but there is a growing movement within the U.S. government to protect itself against EMP attack. In April of 2015, the Pentagon relocated NORAD computer systems to a bunker buried deep beneath Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. NORAD is the nation's first line of defense against enemy attack. In 2008, the U.S. government assembled a panel of scientists chaired by William R. Graham, the premier EMP researcher in the country, from a variety of EMP, nuclear, and national defense-related disciplines to analyze the threat level of an EMP attack. The report was called the Report of the Commission to Assess the Threat of the United States from Electromagnetic Pulse Attack. You can get a copy of, the, of this report, by the way. Now, General Lloyd Austin, commander of CENTCOM, stated that an attack to take down a major section of the U.S. grid was not a question of if, but when. George Cotter, the former chief scientist of the NSA, wrote in his April 2015 white paper titled Security in the North American Grid, a Nation at Risk, that when, when such an attack occurs, make no mistake, there will be major loss of life and serious crippling of national security capabilities. And for good measure, when such an attack does finally occur, FEMA agency admitter, uh, Administrator Craig Fugate stated that the U.S. does not have the tools required to get the grid back up and running quickly, mainly because we have to get transformers. And most, I don't think they even build transformers in the United States anymore. Figure that one out. Oh, let me see something here real quick before we get crazy here. All right. Mm, here, we're going to listen to this video featuring a retired Navy SEAL for a summary of what would happen should an EMP strike the United States. It's about five minutes long, but I think it's well worth it. Let us listen to it together. More on this. Dave Sears is a former U.S. Navy SEAL. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Good morning to you. Important to have you on with the stakes so high today. Uh, first of all, what did you make of what Nikki Haley was just saying live on our air a few moments ago on top of, uh, as Rich was saying, Defense Secretary Mattis yesterday in the driveway of the White House laying out the stakes pretty directly? Oh, I thought it was a great statement by Ambassador Haley. She really kind of laid out the history lesson everybody needs to know, very mm -hmm. succinctly, very sure. It, should frankly be an embarrassment to the United Nations Security Council as well. Yeah, for sure, because there's been all of this talk and very little action for so long. Uh, something else that caught my eye is the fact that what North Korea is at least claiming about this last test uh, is talking about a powerful electromagnetic pulse. Uh, that they say could knock out uh, entire cities in the U.S. It seems to me the stakes have gotten higher when this is not uh, just a hydrogen bomb, which is uh, 
massive enough, scary enough, but when you walk through this, uh, what exactly is an EMP? It's the burst of radiation when a nuclear weapon is detonated above the Earth. No blast felt on Earth, but the electromagnetic fields still reach the surface. Uh, and the bottom line is uh, that the aim of this is to knock out power in much of the U.S. Uh, and the claim from experts is that outages could last for months, affecting hospitals, emergency services, food and water. Talk to us a little bit about this, Dave, of the, the, the notion uh, that uh, this kind of electromagnetic attack could go beyond just taking out lives. They could be taking out our electric grid as well. No, absolutely. Uh, electromagnetic pulse is a real thing, and so it's a high-altitude detonation of a nuclear weapon could cause that, among, amongst other things, right? And it would be absolutely devastating if it was over a certain area, depending, especially large city centers or areas like that that are dependent upon those things and it shuts down all sorts of things including our financial systems mm. the, the impacts would be global massively wow. global pretty intense as a former navy seal what's your sense uh, we've been talking to experts all morning about the potential for military conflict here uh, and the fear being that if we launch a unilateral attack the president yesterday when asked about that said we'll see so the door is open for a unilateral attack is that you could not just with the, the U.S. initial attack. Before we continue, let me point out yesterday's episode of the Jeffers Brief. We talked about first use, first use nuclear weapons policy. They just mentioned it here. Um, kill many North Koreans, but in a response from North Korea, the idea is that a city like Seoul on the south side could be wiped out as well. Talk about the stakes there. Right, they're huge. So I think that we know this conventional option, and as we've played it out, either us a preemptory attack or North Korea attacks first mm -hmm. into Seoul is huge. The loss of life is huge on both sides. So that's why I think it also leads to really strongly looking at things like a second strike option that we have and saying, look, we're going to strike to, like Secretary Mattis said, annihilation. You know, the, this, this thermonuclear weapon that they tested, yeah. uh, it, assuming it is, is a complete change in our calculations because assuming that they can get now a device aboard an ICBM that they can launch, we have to start assuming that these missile tests, how, how do we know that they're not nuclear-tipped missiles? Right. We have no way to know that, so our response has to be adjusted towards that. The calculations have completely changed. Dave, I have just a minute, but there's something you said there that I really want to dig deeper on so our viewers understand it, so I understand it. You're talking about a second strike. Uh, that's easy, second nature for you, but I want to understand it better. So the talk has been uh, in the media that a unilateral strike by the U.S. wipes out a bunch of people on the north side, maybe some spillover on the south side. Then there's a, an immediate response from the north, and that could wipe out Seoul, as we mentioned. You're talking about the possibility of us, the U.S., launching a unilateral strike at first, and then what is this idea of a second strike right away to prevent a response from the north, is what you're saying? No, I'm not talking about okay. us launching a, uh, so what's a second unilateral strike? first strike. A second uh -huh. strike is in response to North Korea launches a weapon towards Guam or hits Guam with a weapon or hits Japan with a weapon. The second strike that we would initiate, our response to that, that's the second strike, mm -hmm. is complete and utter annihilation of North Korea. And likely it would have to be nuclear in nature. So you'd have to take out Pyongyang, you'd have to take out all those artillery pieces, everything else. So the, the calculation is, you know, ramped way up. Wow. 
But and, and obviously there would be spillover in, onto the south side. When you talk about annihilating Pyongyang with a nuclear strike, it, it's not just going to stay on one side of the border. This, this is an enormous challenge ahead. Yeah, huge. I mean, nobody wants it to go to this. And so China, supposedly very interested in stability in the region, is the, the major reason that they want to weigh in with North Korea and South Korea. Wow. Well, they're pushing towards massive instability right now yeah. and dangerous escalations. A lot of options on the table for President Trump. We appreciate you. All right, as you can tell, that interview was done a while ago, but I thought it was interesting to, to listen to. So, so this raises the next question. Who could attack the United States with an EMP? If we set aside an attack by the sun in the form of a geomagnetic storm, EMP would most likely come from a high-altitude detonation of a nuclear weapon. Any nation that has nuclear weapons would be capable of posing an EMP threat to the United States. Currently, that means any country in the nuclear club could launch an EMP attack. For the U.S., biggest threats would come from Russia, China, Pakistan, Iran, and North Korea are two countries eager to expand their nuclear programs, so they are also threats. In 2004, Russia admitted that North Korea had recruited several Russian nuclear EMP scientists to develop its own attack capabilities. In May of 2013, former head of CIA... R. James Woolsey wrote in a Wall Street uh, Journal article how North Korea could cripple the U.S., that North Korea was indeed an EMP threat to the U.S. and suggested the necessity for a preemptive strike. In November of 2013, the South Korean National Intelligence Service was able to confirm that North Korea was developing its EMP attack capability. There is also a threat of a terrorist cell could acquire or steal that capability. They would not need an intercontinental ballistic missile to make it happen. It could be launched from a simpler missile off a cargo ship floating just offshore. So what would happen in the immediate aftermath of an EMP? Imagine this, if you will, courtesy to Rod Steiger. You're sitting at home watching TV as snow falls outside. All of a sudden, everything just goes out. You are, about to, you are about to live through one of the most life-changing experiences in modern history. You probably wouldn't even know it at first, thinking it's just another problem with the power company. Oh, yes. It's a huge problem with the power company, my friends. Well, just like you, everybody else has lost power as well, and depending on where the detonation occurred and how many MPs were launched, the impact could be felt across giant swaths of the United States, crippling us as a nation. Not only is the power out, but electrical devices are fried. Refrigerator won't turn on, even with a generator. Cell phone doesn't work. You can't get cash out of the bank. No one can process credit card payments. People on life support start dying. Now, the EMP Commission report analyzed vehicles made from 1986 to 2002 and found that the majority of them were still operable even after a simulated EMP attack. They simply need to be restarted. However, the damage caused by the confusion and subsequent car accidents would create unheard of traffic congestion throughout the country, particularly at busy intersections and urban areas. Now, people can band together and get through tragedies when they see an end in sight. But with after effects of an EMP strike, there would be no end in sight. Think you saw a rush of the supermarket at the onset of COVID-19? After an EMP, total and complete mayhem would ensue. Those who needed refrigerated medicine, dialysis, or other electricity or electrically driven healthcare items would be the next group to die.
So what would happen within a week of an EMP? People throughout the nation would grow used to the sight of American migrants and refugees walking past their front door. Much like refugees traveling from war torn countries, they'd be carrying everything with them that they had on their person at that point of the pulse. Most would have grown used to the daily knock at their door, another person asking for help, food, water, shelter, a ride, medicine, a coat, anything. The stories that would be heard over EMP hardened ham radio emergency frequencies and from migrants would be both terrifying and heartbreaking. Now, food and water supplies. It's been widely theorized that after three days of no new food supply, society begins to break down. A study indicated that about 40% of Americans do not keep more than three days worth of food and water at their home at any given time. In addition, Grocers only stock one to three days worth of food on their shelves. Keep in mind that much of the food in coolers and freezers will have spoiled. <clears throat> there would be total and complete chaos once the food ran out. Riots, violence would occupy the streets as hunger gradually gave way to desperation. In an effort to both escape the anarchy around them and to find food of some sort in rural environments, whether that be via charity, theft, or wages, there would be mass migrations from those cities of those who were still alive. In a similar vein is the availability of potable water. Now trains typically carry the chemicals needed to purify water for urban environments. Should an EMP devastate the electronics in the nation's locomotives, there are slim chances that the necessary chemicals for water for purification would ever find their way to the cities. Without access to clean water, personal hygiene would quickly disintegrate and there would soon be an outbreak of waterborne and hygiene-related diseases such as cholera, hepatitis, giardia, and more. Let's talk about currency and economy. Now, Americans would very quickly resort to a barter economy for goods and services. The U.S. dollar, once the most sought-after dollar in the world, could have no value whatsoever. Fewer people would accept cash as it does not satisfy the immediate needs of survival. Preppers who stock silver may have better odds of using that as currency. I'll say it again in case you missed it. Preppers who stock silver may have better odds of using that as currency. Now, the growing transportation problems. Through the EMP Commission report seemed to indicate that cars from 86 to 02 would generally still function. The report did seem to indicate that running out of gas would be a larger issue. Now vehicles from 02 and prior still may have the capability of running, but if there is no longer any gas due to refineries being taken off commission and transportation being an impossibility, it's rather a moot point. Having a car without gas is like having a gun without ammunition. So, think you'd be safer in, air, in rural areas? How will trucks carry the necessary products to support daily life make it to the countryside? How would you get to work? Not that work commute would matter. You would likely no longer have a job, no income. No clear indication things will return to normal. Ever again. Guys, gals, my friends, my listeners, my enemies... Hear me now. Listen to me later. 
An EMP attack will set this country back 150 years. So what would happen long-term after an EMP? Now, according to the EMP Commission report, one year after such an attack, only 10% of Americans would still be alive. So let me think here. 10%. If we've got 330 million people, do the uh, math, my friends. That's not many. The other 90% would die from starvation, societal chaos, and disease. And according to Newt Gingrich, an EMP attack would throw our entire... Well, there, there it is. With an EMP attack with our, our entire society back into the Middle Ages. I was being generous. He says Middle Ages. So let's talk about law and order. Rule of law would resort back to a tribal level. level. Small towns and groups of people would have insulated themselves against outsiders and as such would have their own laws. Turf wars would have taken place as various clans fought over resources. Brutal violence would be commonplace. Food production. There are fewer farmers today than there ever has been in U.S. history. Currently, 2% of Americans feed the other 98%. This was made possible through advances in technology. Industrial farmers can now plant more seed faster and over wider areas than ever before. Similarly, harvesting is electrically driven. Crippling farming technology would very quickly lead to starvation. Those precious few with a knowledge of older farming techniques, working small-scale farms, and save seeds would hold life-saving information. However, they would not be able to scale up quickly enough if they survived. Farms would be immediate targets in such a prolonged crisis. Absence of wealth. Even if the power got up, back up and running, there would still be a permanent loss of individual and institutional wealth. Of the 10% of Americans who would survive the effects of an EMP blast, they would likely be starting again from nothing. The only wealth that they would have at this point would have to come from their bartering ability, their ability to steal, or from their ability to provide vital services such as blacksmithing, farming, medical work, and the like. And a prolonged lack of electricity, it is very unlikely that things would ever get back to normal and what would be considered a timely fashion. The truth is that time, that the time it would take to get the power up and running throughout the country would be years. One of the reasons for this is because of large power transformers. The large power transformers, LPTs, which are essential to the power grid, would likely be irreparably damaged. Virtually all of these LPTs are individually tailored for the locations in which they serve. This means there are seldom interchangeable parts. There are a limited number of companies within the U.S. that had the capability of building an LPT, and when they do so, it often takes in excess of six months before the final product is actually delivered. When the LPT is delivered, it is so massive that it requires specialized equipment in order to do so. Many LPTs were put into place with railways which no longer exist. Deliver one to, to deliver one to a location that does still have easy access to a railway, a specialized freight car known as a schnabel is required. As you can see, getting the power back up and running would most likely not be ac accomplished within a year, very possibly within your lifetime. 
So how will the government respond? Well, first of all, they'll run around screaming and blaming, you know, Trump. I mean, that, I mean, that's what they do now. It's Trump's fault. Okay. It's the Republicans' fault. Okay. Because the fact is this, my friends. Government has a terrible time trying to do anything. Their main function in government is to blame. They're very good at blaming someone else, something else. It's only a handful of government that actually try to get something done. Why? Because it's much easier to sit, bitch, complain, and blame others. That's why. So there are several steps that the U.S. government has taken to protect the nation against an EMP. The first main step that they took place to protect the nation against EMP that we know of was the EMP Commission Report of 2008. That report took a detailed look at the effect which an EMP attack would have on a variety of different sectors of society such as transportation, water, infrastructure, food, logistics, and more. Since that time, there have been other steps that have been taken at the federal level. Now, my friends, uh, back in the 80s, Reagan asked the military to start hardening communications equipment and other uh, pieces of equipment against an EMP attack. They never finished it because Congress cut the funding off. Morons. Let me continue. On October 13, 2016, Obama signed Executive Order 13744, coordinating efforts to prepare the nation for space weather events. Though not a de facto EMP attack preparedness plan, planning for space weather events overlaps significantly with hardening one's resources against an EMP. And it wasn't long after that when FEMA and the Department of Energy developed a report known as the Power Outage Incident Annex, managing the cascading impacts from a long-term power outage in 2017. Then on March 26, 2019, President Trump signed in uh, to effect Executive Order 13865, coordinating national resilience to electromagnetic pulses. This started a cascade of federal decisions beginning with the Department of Homeland Security's research of evidence-based EMP mitigation techniques to protect critical infrastructure. These steps should not put you at ease, however. The government, as we witnessed with Hurricane Katrina and the COVID-19 pandemic, has a horrible track record with organizing resources and assistance in times of disaster. Red tape inefficiency, and incompetence creates their own problems. What's more, the federal government will be intent on retaliating against any enemy forces behind the attack. The United States would be waging war on one hand and trying to help its own people on the other. If a large-scale devastating event like an EMP strike hit, you should expect to be on your own. This leads us to seven things you can do to prepare for an EMP. That's quote from Jay Johnson, Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, while speaking on the threat of massive power outages, said this. This is the quote. At some point, this is on the individual member of the public to do a little bit to plan for that contingency. He's saying, be a prepper. 
prepare now. So, number one, beans, bullets, and Band-Aids. It's a prepping mantra that drives home the overarching aspects of personal preparedness. These tenets that apply to various shit-hits-the-fan scenarios apply here as well. Beans, bullets, and Band-Aids represent our first of our ways to survive an EMP attack because they cover all of our key components. Do you have at least some food stored for your family? Do you have the means and knowledge of how to defend yourself in case of an attack? Do you have a stockpile of common medications, a knowledge of basic first aid, and the other necessary medical supplies you may need in case you no longer have access to a doctor? Do you have a plan? Conduct a personalized threat assessment. Now, according to the MP commission report, within one year after the MP attack, 90% of the U.S. population could could be dead. This will be due to starvation, lack of appropriate medical care, violence, infectious diseases, and such. It is vital that you fall back on your prepper staples of beans, bullets, and band-aids if you want to have any chance whatsoever of surviving an EMP blast. If an EMP never hits, no problem. Your BBBs will cover your preppy needs for other catastrophe, short or long term. Beans. Seeing that lack of food due to lack of transportation, lack of harvesting equipment, lack of processing equipment, lack of refrigeration, lack of crops being planted is going to be a significant issue post-EMP. One of the most important things you can do to keep your family safe is begin storing food. Only within the past few decades have Americans forsaken the food larder. For millennia, mankind has stored at least a winter's worth of food within his residence so that he could stay alive until the next growing season. Stocking a larder can be done fairly inexpensively. Now, beans is used to refer to food in general. Beans themselves, however, well, they're a great place to start, beans and rice. They're cheap, store very well in mylar bags with oxygen absorbers, and can keep you alive for a long time. The details of how to build a long-term food storage goes beyond well beyond this, but to get you started, you can read about building a prepper pantry, foods that store well, bulk survival food deals, and of course, long-term coffee storage. You've got to have coffee. And don't forget water. Lots of stored water and, way, and multiple ways to purify it. Let's talk about bullets. Surviving an EMP in the initial phase is easy. In fact, there's nothing you have to do to survive the actual pulse itself. It's the after effects that represent the danger. Too few supplies for too many people. If, if you're properly prepared and people know it, they will come knocking on your door. As this old Twilight Zone episode illustrates, he's talking about the episode called The Shelter. I did one of my first episodes of podcasting on that particular episode. So, it's imperative to not disclose the fact that you're prepping and to keep your preps hidden. For me, it's too late. I do this. So, however, even if you do all that, starvation will inevitably get to people. It's one thing to fall victim to starvation, quite another to watch your child or loved one starve before your eyes. It's the latter that will prompt people to take steps they would have never imagined themselves taking before. So will you be ready to defend you, your family, and your preps? you got to stock up on basic inventory of firearms, in particular shop for bulk ammo deals. Get the ammo cheap and stack it deep, baby. Talk about some stocking canned goods. There you go. 
Band-Aids is like beans. It's a word to describe a larger category, in this case, medical care. Should you become an, EM, an EMT as a matter of medical preparedness? You don't have to, but it wouldn't hurt. What matters most is some basic level of knowledge on medical care and having basic medical equipment stored so you can meet short-term needs. You're not going to be able to treat cancer after the apocalypse, but you could splint a broken bone. So find a balance in your medical preps. You should have that stuff. Pay close attention to your medical needs and the needs of your loved ones. What prescriptions do you need? Do you have enough stocks so that if there's a disruption in supply chain, you would be okay? Plan this out in your threat assessment. Consider having these two books on hand. And I have them. You need to get them. It's called When There Is No Doctor and Where There Is No Dentist. Both can be downloaded as a free PDF files or, as I recommend, purchased as paperback books. Remember, we're talking a long-term grid-down situation here where electronic devices have been rendered useless. You won't have to rely on accessing a PDF in a time of medical need. If you got the book, you always got the information. Other medical books to consider adding to your prepper bookshelf include Davis's Drug Guide for Nurses. I've got that one. The Department of Army's First Aid Manual. Emergency War Surgery. I got that one. Tactical Combat and Casualty Care and Wound Treatment. Number two, you've got to have alternative communications plans. We talked about why last episode. Now, you might be able to find, this is kind of an interesting radio. I want you to think about this. It's called the President McKinley SSB, that's single sideband radio, in all your vehicles, or, or if you want to, place a UV5R. That's the Balfen, in all your vehicles for disaster purposes only. In fact, the UV5Rs are so cheap, it's almost an obvious decision to stock a few of them. Now, Midland Radio is a great company for buying various types of grid-down communications equipment. Of particular interest are their micro-mobile units, ham radios, and CB radios. If you're paying attention, you're probably struck by my second point of advice, buying alternative communication gear, thinking, wait, you said that electronic communication would be destroyed, now you're saying buy some. Correct. Electronic equipment will survive if, if it's protected. A Faraday cage is the common means of protecting electronics from an EMP of geomagnetic storm. A what, you might ask? Guys, it's called a Faraday cage. In fact, I just saw being offered. Where did I see it? It's a Faraday bag. Ooh. All right. You can build your Faraday cage. There are plans all over the internet. Look it up. If you're not handy, don't have the time, or just don't need something as large as an entire box, buying a Faraday cage is probably a wiser move. It's convenient, quick, easy way to protect your equipment. All kinds of fun stuff. Don't forget about your bug out bags. Talked about on this show and many, many, many others about bug out bags or get 
or get home bags. Now, one, you need to prep for life off the grid. Well, here, let's put it this way. A better way to prep might be to plan for life without power at all. You got to have a family plan. We've talked about that. All right. Number seven, you need to start creating a group now. There is safety and strength in numbers. And the, to, and the time to improve your disaster resiliency through such is now, not post-disaster. I've done this. I've talked to my neighbors. My neighbors have let me in on some interesting information that I will probably be utilizing shortly. The fact is, you got to talk to your neighbors. Find out who has what, who believes what. Now, you've heard the, you know... We all have to, you know, you know, like thinking, like-minded individuals. Well, that helps. If you got somebody who doesn't think like you, why in the hell would you want to try to survive with them? Well, it depends on that person. Who is that person? Something to think about. The thing, the the strength about having a group is this. You have shared supplies, shared resources, and this is most importantly, shared know-how. Your neighbor just might know enough about small engines, can repair them. Mechanic, maybe he has, maybe he was an EMT at one time. You don't know, you got to talk to these people. And then you really got to put your cards on the table and say, this is what I want to do. 99% of our society is not going to survive, my friends. Hell, 99% of our society isn't even prepared. So think about this, my friends. That's it for this episode. I wanted to put it out there because I think it's important for you guys to know. All right, do me a favor. Rate my shows. Whatever platform you guys are listening to me on, please rate the show. Rate the program. It would really help out a lot. Help me out. It doesn't cost you anything. And, of course, you see I have the uh, website for Contra Radio Network and uh, my own site listed here. Uh, oh, before I forget, for you people that joined us on PLS, the PLS group, thank you. You know what's up. All right. Thanks again. Be alert, be prepared, and be vigilant. We'll see you next week. Have a good one.